Pastor Kyle. The first is, is he's extremely authentic. Like, who you get on stage, because I've watched some of y'all's services, who you get on stage is who you get in the lobby, is who you get in the office. Who, it, it, like, that's just, that is Kyle, you know? The second thing is, is how he gossips about you behind your back. He talks so well of his church. Like, he respects you, he believes in you, and that that was one of the things that stood out to me immediately. Like he believes in the work that God is doing in this local community and it's exciting. It's an honor to be a part of that. So can we do something? Can we honor your pastors, Pastor Kyle and Pastor Taryn? Yeah, come on now. Like Lee said, my name is Todd Corpy, and uh, I am uh, a pastor and a missiologist. Um, missiology is essentially the, the study of Christians on mission. It's kind of the intersection of Christianity and anthropology and sociology and any other ology you can think of. And uh, it, But it, it basically, we study Christians and culture, how the two intersect. And, and so, yeah, I'm doing my, my doctoral dissertation with Fuller uh, Theological Seminary and studying how that is done right here in Jacksonville, Jags Territory. You all... By the grace of God, rescued me from uh, the, the pride up in uh, Lions Country, brought me down here where there hasn't been a Super Bowl victory yet, but there's sure as heck a, a much stronger chance than, than back home in, in Michigan. So I love my Lions, but I'm ready to embrace all that is uh, Jags Country. So um, well, we just actually just moved here at the end of October, and loving, loving life, loving Jacksonville. It is a great, great community, but I, I, I teach part-time uh, at Fuller uh, in the master's program from which I, I graduated, as well as I work for a research firm that does theological research for uh, an institu- or through churches, parachurch ministries, and stuff, but... I will do my best not to make this like an academic lecture or anything like that. So uh, don't let that like dissuade you or anything like that. But today I actually want to take a little bit of a diversion from how I approach things in the first service and, because I feel like there's a very unique culture in, in this room um, and that God wants to do something very specific. Uh, I want to touch on uh, the bread and, and the wine here in a minute, but I want to affirm how, first of all, the fact that you guys do this on a weekly basis. In, in the evangelical church, one of the, the lost beauties, um, I think, that we, that we are recovering, it's not completely foregone, but it's the practice of the weekly partaking of the Eucharist, of coming to the table. That was the focal point. Yeah, you can clap. That's awesome. That was a, it was a focal point of the early church. In fact, up until around the second uh, or middle second century, the church would come together they would break bread as the church began in individual cities getting too large to meet in one home or one building. They would actually take, it was so important as a display of their unity that they would take the bread from the bishop's church, the main church in, in the city, and they would, they uh, used what's called fragmentum, which is they would take pieces of it and distribute it among all of the, the family churches to, as a symbol of their common unity. And so when we partake of the Lord's table, it's this constant reminder uh, of to whom we belong and it, with whom we belong. Like we, we are a people of God. And, that, and that's what really we're going to talk about today. We started this series last week called Religiously Transmitted Diseases. And I love, I love this as, as this great Lenten series. Lent is this period of time leading up to Easter where we really kind of get our hearts and, uh, right, our posture right in preparation. It's, it's a reorienting season of laying some things down, of, of reprioritizing uh, our lives 
in preparation for Easter. And I'm of the mind, and I might be in the minority here, but I, I don't think I am. I'm of the mind that Easter is the, the single greatest holiday in the history of humankind. Sorry, 4th of July. Sorry, Christmas. Like, I'm all about Christmas, but Easter is the day, as N.T. Wright says, the day the revolution began. And I love, I love the fact that while Lent lasts 40 days, Easter in its original context lasted 50 days in a time where, and it symbolizes that, yeah, there's a, time, a period of time of laying things down, but there's an even greater period of time of picking things back up again, of taking up God's vocational work in, in the world to make things new as we await his return. And so last week, Pastor Kyle opened up with the disease of hypocrisy. And I love the fact that he used this illustration of when his hands turned blue. I don't know if you were here last week. It freaked me out. I was like, dude, you need to go to the doctor. <laughs> I'd, I'd still be going to the doctor. But I love that illustration for two reasons. One, it beautifully, beautifully illustrated the point that he was making. But the second thing was that the hand is, is not an island in and of itself, right? In fact, Paul uses the, the analogy of the body as, as, uh, to represent the church. But when, when your hand starts turning blue, you're not, I mean, you're worried about your hand, but you're worried that there's something greater at work, right? You're worried that there's a disease at work that's even worse. Like, every time I get, like, a toothache, I'm like, oh, man, my tooth hurts. I probably have a cavity. Then I'm like, what if I'm dying of a heart attack? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, you, you think those things. That's why WebMD is the worst website that you can possibly go to because you're like, yeah, my pinky hurts. And it's like, you have, you know, leprosy. <laughs> you know, like, that's, you know, that's just how it goes, you know? But it's this picture that the, even though it's just the hand that's showing the symptoms, the body, it's a concern for the whole body, right? And these religiously transmitted diseases that we're going to talk about throughout the series that we talked about last week that we're going to talk about today, they may be symptomatic. We may be able to look at headlines where different branches on the family tree are making headlines because of a sin being exposed in their camp. And we may say, well, that's pitiable. Like, that's, that's, that really stinks for them. But those are symptoms on the hand, and we're over here on the other hand, or on the foot, or on the knee, and recognizing that the, that what, the disease in one part of the body affects us all, and it's a concern for us all. And that's not a cause for paranoia, but it's a cause for us to recognize we all come to the table on Sundays. We all have the same baptism, and what God is doing, we let, we, we're very individualistic. We like to think, you know, like... You know, Jesus was doing great stuff, but then I came around and, the, you know, the church really got working, you know. Like, that's, that's kind of what we think. Like, we, we view life in orientation of ourselves, but God has his church scattered all throughout the world. And what goes on in, you know, the Coptic churches of Cairo and the Southern Baptist Convention and in the United States, they affect us all and they should concern us all. And we should pray for the other branches on the family tree. I say all that to say is that today we're going to talk about, um, last week we talked about the disease of hypocrisy. Today we're going to talk about the disease of idolatry. And I know that's a real seeker-sensitive topic. So uh, I, I know it's going to, but I wanted to set some people free today uh, from maybe some things that you didn't even realize were, were holding you back in your relationship with Christ. And I want to start out in at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. But before we get into that, I want to set some ground rules in terms of how we're going to approach the scriptures today. And I want to give this to you as kind of a best practice for how you engage the Bible as a whole. It's, it's a very helpful point to remember that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Okay? The Bible was written for us, 
but it was not written to us. It is God's, it is for us in the sense that it is God's timeless love letter, his covenantal framework that he has laid out for all of humanity. And we can we can derive principles from its contents that impact and transform our lives and the world around us. But the Bible did not just fall out of the sky. You know, it was not given to Moses on golden plates. You know, like it, it didn't come out of a vacuum. It was written by specific people to specific people in specific times and for specific purposes. You guys tracking with me? I know that sounds super elementary, but but it's important for us to lay this groundwork because when we look at the subject or the the story of Genesis the creation narrative, we see this story that it starts out in the beginning, God created or Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. But that framework, that story was written in a specific time to a specific people by a specific person. We believe it's commonly accepted that Moses was the one that penned those words. And when he wrote those words, he wrote it as an apologetic work, again, uh, up in, uh, in contrast to other creation stories that were out there in the ancient Near East. So here we are, 1400 BC, and other Mesopotamian cultures are saying, you know, in, in the beginning, the gods warred, and the, you know, cosmic aftermath of their great bloody battle was the universe. In the beginning, you know, the, the gods, you know, had a cosmic sneeze, and, you know, out came creation, and it, it was assumed in Moses' culture in the time and place in which he penned, in the beginning, Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. It was assumed that creation was kind of an accident, or it was kind of, it was an afterthought. It was, it was, it was the byproduct of something more tragic, something greater that had gone on, irrespective of what was happening here. And humanity was created as kind of the slave labor to take care of it all. You know, it's like, you know, you got a big mess and you make your kids clean it up. You know what I mean? Like, come on, we're real. Like, I'm a parent. Like, I have three kids. I make them clean up the mess, you know. And like, they, you know, but here we have a very different story play out. This is the prevailing narrative of the time. And Mesopotamian kings, as they would stake out their territory in this, in this earth to please or to, to dissuade the anger of their gods, would establish, they would carve images of themselves and of their deities, and they would, they would set them in the corners of, of their kingdoms and throughout the land. So as people would pass from, uh, from one land into another, they would recognize the image and they would say, this land belongs to King Og or king, the king of Tyre or whatever. These images were meant to reflect the dominion, the right of the king to own that land. And it's in that context that Moses wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he begins to create this narrative where God speaks into the vacuum and life begins to spring forth. An expanse separates the waters and the land, the, air, the, 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 air, the, the atmosphere, the sea, the plant life, the animal life all come to being. And then God has this idea. Let us make humanity in our image. As, and just like the other kings throughout the, the earth, he bent down and he got together some dust to some dirt. He molded it into an image 
of himself. But unlike the other kings who just set it on the four corners of their kingdom, lifeless, incapable of of truly reflecting who they were, he breathed his own life-giving breath into that dust, and it became a man. And then he took from that man, from his side, not from above, not from below, but equal to, he took from that man a rib and made a companion. He made woman. And then he looked back and he said, it's very good. But then he goes on and he sets humanity throughout his dominion as his image bearers, as his imagers to reflect his glory, to make all of creation aware of the fact that this is his dominion. He's the rightful king. So when people come in and go out from the garden, they know that this land belongs to Yahweh and no one else. That's the beauty of this vocation that God calls first, the first humans to. This idea that you will be my image. In fact, that, that trans, translation, let us make man in our image, is probably better translated, let's make man as our image, or as our image bearers. It's a call, not a, it's not a description of identity, but it's a call of covenant vocation. That God calls humanity, he calls each and every one of us, to reflect his glory to creation, and in turn, to reflect the praises of creation back to him. We stand in the gap between heaven and earth, reflecting God's glory to creation, to all of humanity, and to reflect the praises of humanity back to him. But we know how the story goes, right? Adam and Eve didn't do so well. They didn't fare so well in that vocation. But the, the narrative of, you know, eating fruit, like what's wrong, you know, what kind of fruit was it, kind of want to stay away from that, like, you know, they took a bite of it and, you know, all of this kind of stuff, it, it, it's a little bit confusing to 21st century Americans. It's like, okay, like, it must have been just God said no, they said yes, and he, he was like, no, I really meant no, and that's the end of it. But what we have in that story is not simply the transgression of a moral code. We have the first example of idolatry. In that conversation between Eve and the serpent, you see the serpent say, I'm paraphrasing here, what God really doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because if you do it, you'll be like Yahweh. If you eat that fruit, you'll have Yahweh's power. And something in the appetite of Eve, not for the fruit, but for the likeness, to be able to image herself instead of God to be equal to God instead of subservient to God. Something something quelled up in her that caused her to sin. And we have the first failure of that covenant vocation. Idolatry is, more than anything, it's not bowing down to a statue. It's not just, you know, doing this or that. All the things that come to mind when we think of, you know, Old Testament pictures of idolatry. Idolatry is ultimately a failure of our vocation to image God properly. It is taking something and imaging it or imaging ourselves instead of reflecting the image of our creator. What I want to uh, to lay out to you is that fundamentally, the, uh, the entire relationship between us and God, his people and he, our God, is summed up all throughout the scriptures, and we'll get to this at the end, in the phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you all of this land, he says to Adam and Eve. You steward it in faithfulness back to me. I will bless you. You remain faithful. I will bless you. You remain loyal. I will bless you. You remain allied to me and me alone. 
That is the fundamental nature of the covenant. And in Deuteronomy, I'm going to quickly blow through this. But in Deuteronomy, we have three things. In the, in the first three commandments, God actually outlines what idolatry looks like. The first commandment deals with who to worship, which is God and God alone. The second commandment deals with how to worship. And the third commandment deals with how to represent the one we worship. In the first commandment, we see that idolatry is loyalty to something other than God. It's not just a having placing something above God, which is what we often think of in America. Like, well, I don't, I don't really worship money because, like, I worship God. I tithe. So, like, you know, money's like second place. But it's this idea. It's not just you shall have no other gods before me in, in terms of, like, before me in line. It's before, it really could be translated, you shall have no other gods besides me in my presence. You shall not treat something with equality to me. I am other than. I am transcendent. The second thing, idolatry is loyalty to ourselves above God. It is choosing my way. It is really the sin of Eve. It's choosing, you know what, I can have some, you know, I can do this better than God. I know better than God on this one. And, you know, Jesus, like, and honestly, I can speak from experience on this. This, this, is, this is my hang-up, especially as a pastor. Like, Jesus, I know you're really busy. I got this. Don't worry about this. Like, I, I got, you know, I'm, you know, I got this. You know, like, we think, and we take matters into our own hands. We do things in our own strength, in our own way, instead of submitting to the feet of Jesus. It's the sin of placing ourselves, it's loyalty to ourselves above God. And then finally, in the third commandment, idolatry is working for our own purposes in God's name. How often do we do that, you know? We do something, we rationalize something in accordance with our tribe, our political party, our this or that, our, our ideology, our background, and we place a WWJD bracelet on it. We say, this is, thus saith the Lord, right? We take the name of God, and, we, and how many times throughout history, I'm not going to get into specifics, but we see this even today all throughout the world, people oppressing others and placing a Jesus stamp on it, right? People oppressing others and saying, thus saith the Lord. It's imaging God for our own purposes instead of imaging God for his purposes. In other words, idolatry is fundamentally a betrayal of our covenant. Here's the thing. If I can get real for a moment. This, this whole idea of idolatry, really, we, when we think of idols, what we're really talking about is appetites. Like, uh, like what was said here from Tara this morning about our desires, those hungers, those things that we have deep inside of us that really are what controls us. You know, we say, I love Jesus, so I go to church, but then our, our desires, our appetites well up. You know, I, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm totally bought in. And then, like, our desire to, to sleep in, you know, wells up or our desire to, to go to this thing or that thing. And when I, when I was growing up in my youth group, it was the desire, you know, of every parent to live vicariously through their children's, you know, promising and budding athletic career. So they'd skip church for months on end and disconnect them from the community. So hopefully they'd wind up an Olympian, which never ended up happening, you know. It, it's these kind of things of placing and removing. Moving ourselves from our vocation to image God and instead choosing to do things our own way. I would submit to you this, 
that our appetites, the three appetites that we have that manifest themselves all throughout history. It's not just an American thing. It's not a 21st century thing. We see it in the ancient world. We see it today. But the three appetites that grab a hold of us most often are money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. None of those in and of themselves are bad, right? Money's great. It's better to have money than it is to not have money most of the time. (laughs) Sometimes not having money is a good thing in terms of our formation. Sex is good. That's why you're all here. <laughs> like, if we can be honest, like, we're all here because two people decided that they were going to, to come together in love. And then power is, is good when stewarded well. It, it makes the world go round, right? It, when, <laughs> when, when we steward power properly, things get done. But when it's taken to its extreme, when it's taken out of its context of doing it for the glory of God, money becomes an attempt to live outside of dependence on God, right? Money become, it can be taken to an extreme to where I don't need God. And can I bust, can I bust an idol real quick? Can I do that? Is that all right? Am I making you nervous? In America, we value financial stewardship, right? We value it. We teach it in our churches. I've taught, I've taught series on proper financial stewardship. But did you know that Jesus in the Gospel of Luke actually preaches a parable against saving too much? We value it. We're like, well, we're preparing for retirement. Like Jesus preaches a parable where he tells a story about a man who yielded this harvest, this crop, so much so that all of his barns were full, and he had the choice in that instant. And in the culture, the right thing to do would have been to share the bounty with his neighbors, and instead he built bigger barns. And he was, and we don't really know what to do with that, right? We're like, well, it's good to say, like it's a godly thing. But what he's saying there is the same thing he says when he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's blessed are those who are reliant on God. And we know that money management, I'm not against saving, I'm not against proper money management. But it can be taken to such an extreme that we have our storehouses so we don't need God, right? We have our storehouses so we don't need faith, Sex, well, money is a desire to be independent from God. Sex is a desire for intimacy from someone other than God. It's a desire to image with someone where God isn't taken into consideration. And it has fundamental, there's a reason why sex so intimately interweaves with our identity, right? It's fundamentally woven into our identity, especially as Americans, We can take that to an extreme to where we can take God out of the equation. And all it is is sex, right? And then power. The Lord knows power has been misused in our culture throughout human civilization. Instead of kings being brought under the authority of God. Instead of people, bosses, CEOs, our own lives, fathers and mothers being brought under the authority of God. We step out and we desire to exert a little authority on our own, right? It's a desire to be able to have power, have dominion apart from God. So what is, if that is the disease, if sin is, or if idolatry is this religiously transmitted disease, What's the cure? Now that I've beaten you guys down, we're, we're down here, we're like, oh my God, like idolatry. Like, what's, what's the cure? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because all woven throughout scripture is the cure. 
and it's fidelity to Christ. Fidelity to Christ. You may say, well, that's super simple. It's because it is. <laughs> it's very simple. But when it comes to dealing with our appetites, those things which pull us towards idols, pull us towards other loves other than Jesus, it's a much different story. It's easy to say. It's another thing to do. That's why we have all throughout the Old Testament calls to return to your first love, to, lead, to lay aside idols and return to your first love. That's why Jesus and Paul, that we see it culminate in, in, the, uh, in the revelation of John to the letters of the churches, the fundamental uh, uh, call from Jesus to the letters of the churches in Asia Minor is a call to not forsake their first love and to return to fidelity to Jesus. The whole lampstand, snuffing out the lampstands and all that kind of stuff has to do with faithfulness and loyalty to God, loyalty to Christ above all else. So when things in our lives, in our society, characters, television personalities, cultures, ideologies, tribalisms, partisanship, racial divides tend to pull us into say, give loyalty to this. Pledge allegiance to this. Put your faith and your trust in this. Jesus is over here saying, seek first the kingdom of God. I will be your God, and you will be my people, but you got to leave this aside. I will be your God. You will be my people. You may say, well, that sounds awfully legalistic, pastor. I'm saved by grace through faith. I don't have to do anything to earn my salvation. That's true. You don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. But once you're saved, <laughs> we have a job to do. And we tend to take words like grace and faith, and we disembody them, meaning we give them kind of a Gnostic sort of flair. Like, you know, matters evil. Like, this world's just all going to burn up anyway. We're going to escape to heaven. and None of this matters. I'm just a soul being imprisoned by my earthly body, and I just need to fly away. Like, we laugh, but we tend to believe that, right? But that's not biblical Christianity. In fact, that's what the first three centuries of Christianity fought against. Instead, what Jesus is saying is not this disembodied, well, you know, I believe in Jesus like I believe in, you know, aliens or the Easter bunny. I acknowledge the existence of Jesus, therefore I am saved. That's not the way the ancients thought of the word belief or the word faith. I'm not going to, you don't have to worry about putting the scripture up. But in Ephesians, Paul writes this famous passage that we often, often use to kind of give ourselves a pass at like, well, as long as I believe in Jesus, if I, if I have faith kind of in this like disembodied like hope, you know, like I wish this will happen. So, you know, it, I'm good. I, I check all of these ideological boxes and I behave the right way. So I'm good, right? That's not what Paul's saying at all. He makes a statement in, in Ephesians 2, for by you are saved by Christ's grace, through your faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. What does that mean? Okay, that sounds great. We put it all over, like Family Christian Bookstore and like Lifeway, put it on every piece of artwork that you can imagine, that in 20, Jeremiah 29, 11. Like we put it all over the place, but what does it actually mean? Grace and faith are such weird words, if we, if we can think about it, right? They're very Christianese words, but they weren't Christianese words when Paul said them. You see, we, we remember the Bible was written 
for us, but it was not written to us, right? In this context, it was written to the church in Ephesus, who were Greeks. And in Greece, grace and faith, charis and pistis in Greek, were not religious terms. They were economic ones. They dealt with the relationship between a patron and a client. When a patron, a wealthy benefactor, the master of a guild, would extend, would provide for someone. So let's say a baker is looking to get set up in, in Ephesus. The patron would come along and would extend caris, would extend grace. They would buy all of the equipment for the baker to be able to set up shop. They'd you know, rent out the space and they would take, they would take care. And in Greek culture and the Ephesian culture, it would extend even to, he'd probably pay for the baker's children to go to school. He'd probably pay for their weddings and all of this kind of stuff. That was the relationship that, that was the grace, the caris that a, a, a patron extended to a client. This was completely normal. It wasn't, and we think of gifts as strings attached as like terrible things, right? But we have those kind of concepts in our culture, right? When you, you get married and you have a wedding, people give you gifts, and what are you supposed to do in return? Thank you notes, exactly. Cares pistis. Like we understand the, the exchange. When someone, you know, gives us a gift on, on Christmas and we weren't expecting them to give us a gift, we're like, it, we get that feeling like, Oh, shoot, like there's a social obligation here. In fact, my sister and I actually, the gift that we give each other every Christmas is not giving each other Christmas gifts. It's the best gift I receive. It's the gift that keeps on giving, you know? Like, it, or I, I know some people will like exchange like $20 bills. <laughs> like, if for, and I'm not suggesting that you do that, but we have those ideas of recipro reciprocity in our culture. This was completely normal in the, in the time of the Ephesians. So the patron would extend... Caris would set up and take care of that client, or that uh, that client, and in exchange, the client would give pistis, faith, or faithfulness, or what's otherwise called loyalty. And so, what that would look like is while the patron took care of the the the, the clients, you know, that baker's you know shop, and you know probably managed some trade disputes and you know and price negotiations and stuff like that. They they acted as a covering. For that client, in exchange, when the patron was hosting someone from out of town, the baker would show up with a bread or a, a tray full of pasties bread. You know, he'd be like, "I'm here. I got my bread. I'm gonna take care of you." It was this demonstration of loyalty that was in exchange for the grace that had been shown. That is what we see when Paul says, "For it's by the caris of Christ, this unmerited favor, this." benevolence, this generosity through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the victory of Christ, which trampled the bonds of death, hell, and the grave, who eliminated the curse of sin. Through that grace, Jesus has extended. And that's his grace. Nothing that we could do would ever be able to repay that, right? Just like the beggar could never repay the patron. And in exchange, by grace, through our Pistis, by God's rich benevolence through our loyalty. We have a covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's in Christ that we see the restoration of that original covenant vocation. I will, I will give you in my richness life. I will give you the blessings of my kingdom. And in exchange, 
I ask for your loyalty. I ask for your fidelity. I ask for you to image me properly. So fidelity to Christ, and then secondly, fidelity through Christ to the body. Paul talks in Galatians 3 about how in Christ, because of our common baptism, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female. And he's not eliminating those distinctives. He's not like asking that we all pretend like we're like racial, you know, colorblind, that we're, you know, gender blind. Like we pretend like those distinctives don't exist. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That where all of those distinctives matter outside of the family of God. Where all of those, where our socioeconomic systems and our power structures and inequality, those things matter outside. And they matter where you were placed in the social structure of the, of the culture. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody is welcome to the table. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What that looks like in our society today is that because of our common baptism, black or white, young or old, rich or poor, born into incredible privilege and wealth or born at the bottom of the socioeconomic barrel. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you were a janitor or if you were a CEO. It doesn't matter what you come with. When you come to the table, everyone is welcome. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Why? Because Jesus doesn't need qualifiers to make you proper image bearers. All he wants is your loyalty. That's it. All he wants is your loyalty. You don't have to have all of your ideological boxes checked. You don't have to have all of your behavioral boxes checked. If you press into Jesus, if you desire to love him more, all of that stuff's going to work out in, in its own. That's why he says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added in, in, in its place. And that's why the systems of this world, the idols that desire to, uh, to uh, distract us from that, will say, seek first this, put this first, give your loyalty to this, give your allegiance to that, where Jesus is saying, I want to be your God. Will you be my people? Woven all throughout scripture, we see this. And I want to, I want to end with this t- today. Woven all throughout scripture, we see this relationship where God is saying, I want to be your God. I want to give you I want to shower you with the blessings of my covenant. Demonstrate your loyalty. Come to me in loyalty and watch what I can do. Exodus 6, 7, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Leviticus 26, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Jeremiah 7, 23, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 11, 4, obey my voice and do according to all that I command to you. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 11, 7, then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah 30, 22, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. These are the days that we're living in now, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel eleven twenty, that they may walk in my statutes and I sh- they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 14, 11, that the house of Israel may lo- no longer stray from me. 
but that they may be my people and I may be their God. Ezekiel 36, 28, then you will dwell in the land I gave your fathers. You shall give, or you shall be my people and I will be your God. Hosea 2, 23, then I will sow for her my, or I will sow her for myself in the earth. I will have mercy on her who has not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, that's us, the Gentiles, you are my people and they shall say, you are my God, Zechariah 8, 8, I will bring them back and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Zechariah 13, 9, they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people and each one will say, the Lord is my God. And just in case you were wondering, well, Todd, that's Old Testament. 2 Corinthians six sixteen. and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews 8.10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make in the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And my favorite scripture, at the back of the book, right before the maps, Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Three says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and he, they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. This is the promise that we have in Scripture. Can you give me two minutes? I believe with all of my heart that this, this call to covenant fidelity, there's a reason for this. And it's because God is preparing his church, this church included, you included, to be the hands and feet, the imagers of Jesus, the risen Christ, the son of the living God, in the next great revival which is going to take place in this country. But before a revival, there's a reformation required. Before God says, I want you to go out into the highways and byways. I want you to go to Jeruz or from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and to be my witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He want, there's a period of staying. Before Pentecost, there was a period of staying. There's a, there's a period of reformation which has to take place in the church where we're, we're willing to put aside some idols, where we're willing to put aside some things that compete for our loyalty to Jesus, some of them deeply ingrained in our worldview. But God is calling us to be a third-way kind of people. Not this, not that, but Jesus. I believe with all of my heart that the next season of the, Christian, uh, of the Christian church in the West. The season of revival is going to be a season where God is calling us not simply to gather people in a room so we can feel good about ourselves, although that's great, but to be a mobilized people in our community. And here's the thing. You, that, may, that may kind of be daunting to you, right? Like, I don't know the Romans road, Todd. You know what? I got three degrees in theology and I don't know the Romans road. I can't quote it to you right now. I can Google it. But I don't know it. You know why? Because I never use it. And the reason is, is when I tell somebody about Jesus, I don't try to get them to 
uh, to agree to everything ideologically that I agree with. I don't try to even prove to them that God exists. I try to show them the greatness of my God. And when you see that all throughout the scriptures, even in the preaching of the New Testament, it is Jesus is alive. A new day has dawned. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Hell has been defeated. And Jesus is coming back to establish his new earth, not to rip his people out so he can burn this place up, but to recreate and to transform and that we have a hope in the resurrection of the dead, that we actually in this body together are going to work in conjunction with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth to be his creation stewards in a post-Eden kind of state, the way that it was intended from the very beginning. Won't you participate? Won't you join in? Jesus is king, whether you accept it or not. Jesus is Lord, whether he's your personal Lord or not. Won't you join in? Won't you pledge your allegiance to Jesus? That is the gospel. And you know what? That doesn't involve, you don't have to stand on a milk crate on the street corner and yell at people coming out of Jags games or something like that. Like, you can literally invite people over your home and have a conversation. And at some point, if Jesus is in that, he is that loyal, that loyal placement in your life, he, is that, that he, res, he has that holy place reserved in your heart, it's going to come up. At some point or another, if you're around me long enough, I'm going to tell you about my wife. Like, why? It's not because I'm obligated to contractually. <laughs> it's not in our vows, but I love her. And at some point, I don't have to convince you to love her. I just want you to, I just want you to know her. I want to represent her well. It's the same with Jesus. Bow your heads with me, if you will. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We love you, and God, I commission this church as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray, God, that you would call us to faithfulness. Spirit of God, may you call to mind things in our lives, myself included, that I need to lay down, that I need to set aside, that I need to lower in place. Lord, I pray for those that are, maybe their idol is money. God, I pray that they would create new demonstrations, new habits to suppress that idol, to remove it from their place. God, I pray that they would take up tithing, that they would give extravagantly to others, that they would serve the poor and those less fortunate. And God, that through that, that you would tear down that idol. Lord, I pray for those that uh, their idol is sex. God, I pray that they would find identity through you and not through sex, not through imaging with someone. But God, that you would recreate that identity in them and remove that idol. Lord, for those whose idol is power, God, maybe they feel an angst because of the politics in this country today. May they be free from that in Jesus' name. We serve a king. We don't serve a president. We don't serve a congress. We serve a king. And your rule far preceded and will far outlast our present-day dilemmas. God, may we not legislate morality. May we not try to coerce others with power. But God, may we find our power through humble service, emulating your character, the way that you came to serve and not to be served and to give your life as a ransom for many. We love you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.